Australian politics, economics and China. Interview with former Senator Dio Wong. Coming up on this episode of Citizens Insight. Welcome to Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's interview series on matters of national and international importance. And my guest today is the former Australian Senator, Dio Wong. Welcome, Dio. Thank you. So, Dio, you're visiting Melbourne. You're, from, you're a Senator for Western Australia. And I thought, well, I would love to interview you because I think you have a, an incredibly unique story. The fact that you even became a Senator, which yep. I'd like, I think Australians can... Uh, learn things just hearing your experience but also you are someone who is Australian Chinese you have you know how you have your experience of Australia you have experience of China and I th I'd like to pick your brains on that which I think would be very enlightening um, for the audience as well so first let's give people a sense of who you are tell us about your background uh, well I I was born in China and grew up in China until I was 22 years of age. Where, I, where in China? Nanjing. Oh, the old capital. Yeah, the old capital. Is um, it we? Where's the Where's the pronunciation Nanjing from? Is that a, just a Nanjing was one? under the older sort of uh, pronunciation system. It was Nanjing. Oh, there's yeah. a new system. Okay, yeah. Nanjing. Like Beijing was uh, Peking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Peking duck. Yep, which is lovely. Yep. So and Nan Nanjing is where there was a real Japanese brutality yeah. before World War II. Yeah, 1937, um, December the 13th, when yeah. it all started, um, 300,000 people were killed by the Japanese in a space of weeks. That's known as the Rape of Nanjing. Nanjing, yeah. Shocking. So what was, um, so you, you grew up there till... Uh, 22 years of age, what did you become? Well, I finished my bachelor degree of civil engineering in China and right. um, I came to Melbourne actually to study a master degree. So I oh, yeah. uh, did my master of civil engineering in Melbourne University, started working. What was the attraction of Melbourne, of Australia? Well, the reputation of being a uh, easy um, country to live in, right. and uh, Melbourne University also has a very good reputation as well. Okay, yeah, yeah, of course. It's one of our top universities. Yeah. And you stayed here, you got a job here and stayed here? Yeah, after I uh, graduated, um, found a job in WA, so moved to there. And what are you working in WA? What did you... Uh, mostly mining, uh, mining companies. I was doing project engineering, I was doing company management, etc., etc. Now I'm doing consulting. Right. And what, what years were this when you moved here and then? I came to Melbourne in 2003 I went to WA in 2006. Okay. So you, you've been right in the middle of the WA mining boom. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. 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 I was lucky. Yep. Mm. Every year the, the shipments of iron ore would get bigger and bigger going to China. And the price grew up quite a price, bit as well. Yes, yes. Which is another whole story. I don't know if yeah. you have any insights in that, but there was a, uh, we, the, the, um, uh, uh, our companies made sure that, that uh, they extracted the maximum price for that, for Australian iron ore, which I suppose is our right. Yep. Um, 
And but China was always willing to pay it. Yeah. Might have might have been a little bit upset, etc. You know, at the way it was done, but always willing to pay it. Well, it's the biggest market. It's the biggest consumer of the um, of the steel. So you yeah. know, they always have an end use for it. So even if you pay a bit more upfront, you still find use for it eventually. So it's not. Um, it's it could be a little bit upsetting that you're paying a little little too much. Yeah. But in the end, you're also getting the value out of it anyway. Yeah. Now, um, in 2014, I believe, yeah. you, Australian mining engineer, grew up in China, educated at Melbourne Uni, became an Australian senator. Yeah. How did that came about, come about? Well, I guess because um, at the time, um, we were looking down the barrel of a mining tax. We actually, had, oh, yeah. we actually yeah. just had a mining tax enacted. Yeah. Coming from that industry, I thought it was quite discriminatory to having a tax on this specific industry. And especially given that it's an industry that's driving the growth of the whole country, we should be trying to do everything to facilitate the growth or development of mining industry rather than trying to tax it to death. So that's why I got interested in politics. And when the opportunity came about, I raised my hand, said I want to be part of it. The campaign was quite successful in that, you know, I got 12.5% um, of the Senate vote in WA, so got in. And that was with uh, Clive Palmer's yeah. party the first yeah. time around. Yeah, Palmer United Party. Palmer United, you were a pup senator. Yeah. Along with Jackie Lambie and Glenn, Glenn Lazarus. Lazarus. Yeah. It was that, so it was three of you senators and then Clive in the House. House yeah. Yeah. Um, so, which is an amazing story. Now, do you worked for Clive's company at the time? Uh, I was. I had known him for eight years before I ran yeah. for the Senate. Yeah. Um, and uh, because I know him, I knew that he was going to set up the party. I followed his policies, decided yeah, yeah, to like those yeah. policies, so uh, I decided to join up. Yeah. Um, what do you think of Clive, or what do you think of him then? He's controversial, but he's quite genuine. He's very genuine. What, what do you see behind the caricature? There's a caricature of Clive. What do, yeah. you, do you see there's something different behind the caricature? Well, the media likes to say that he's, you know, a bit of baddie, but um, in real life he could be quite generous and he's very genuine about making Australia a better country. Right. And he had, you know, some really interesting policies as well, um, which unfortunately most of them, or some of them weren't, uh, weren't able to be uh, sort of enacted in the parliament because of the, that's how the system works, I guess. But, you know, He's a genuine about uh, helping Australia to become a better country. Yeah. Now that said, and we're not going to make this about Clive, um, that's a nice thing you've said about him, but you don't mm. agree with Clive on everything, do you? Not on everything, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might come up in a minute. Yeah. So you're a senator now in the Australian part. You're not a senator now. I'm talking about you've now got, in 2014, you find yourself a senator, mm. which you, you would, you, when you came to Australia in, um, as a 22-year-old, I'm sure you had no ambition to ever be a senator in no. the Australian Parliament. So no. you find yourself as a senator. So you're seeing how the system works. You're yeah. in there, in the room, as the laws are being passed, etc. Yeah. Just describe your experience. What was, what's your impressions of the whole thing? From the, you were there for two years or three years or something? Two years. 
Um, it was supposed to be a six-year term, but it was cut short by double dissolution. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I guess it was a um, very interesting experience because you are suddenly exposed to a lot of uh, um, issues that the country was facing, and a lot of people are more than willing to come to you to tell them uh, to tell you about the issues. Yeah. So that was interesting, interesting because it was quite educational. It's also interesting because when you walk into the, into the chamber, you look at one side, these guys are making decisions about how the country is run. <clears throat> and the whole floor is making laws about the country. Yeah. And you would think some of them shouldn't be there. <laughs> um, don't, don't, don't name names, but... No, not going to name names. No, just by, why would you say some of it? What, what sort of things make you think some of them shouldn't be there? Well, some of them wouldn't have any clue what they were talking about. Right. They wouldn't have any clue about how the industry works, how the business works, how the economy works. Um, and some of the things they do are purely for politics. Yeah. And... It's actually pretty bad in terms of polit political fighting. There was a um, senator um, who was a decent person, never liked the political fighting, and I uh, went to his office one day. He had a portrait of the late queen right. on the wall. So I asked him, why would you have a portrait? You know, why do you have that? His answer was, the politics, can be, um, the politics can be so ugly that he needed a reminder that there was a higher authority <laughs> okay. that could uh, sort of oversee the argy-bargy in the chamber to make it all appear all right because the higher, author the higher authority would make things okay. That's how he felt. Yeah. Mm. Um, how, how, uh, how did you see the, the machinery of the two major parties working? Did, do, did the, how much do the senators in the two major parties get to think for themselves versus be dictated to by their machines? Well, if you look at the voting records, you would say a vast majority of the time they're always going to the chamber, look for their party whip. Wherever the whip is sitting, they sit on that side of the whip. And, and what you're saying there, the conclusion, which is my experience as well, they're voting on laws. Yeah. That's how they decide which side. Often they don't even know what they're voting on. No. I mean, the ministers or the shadow ministers, shadow ministers make the call. Yeah. And um, you don't need to come across, you don't, you don't need to be across every piece of legislation. Granted, it was difficult to be across every piece of bill. You know, being a, a member of a party that didn't have ministers or shadow ministers, it was challenging to keep up with what's, um, what's being presented in the chamber. But for a member of the major party, the job was easy if they wanted to, want it to be easy. Yeah, yeah. They just go in and follow their own members. Yeah. And those two major parties are the Coles and Woolies of Australian politics. That yeah. They just take turns, turns governing. Yeah. Um, actually, what you just said puts a different uh, complexion, which is my view anyway, on... Um, Anthony Albanese taking away half the staffers from yeah. the crossbench yeah. 
because even with all the staffers they had, they can't keep up with all the legislation. It's going to be even harder and harder now. No, it's hard. And do we want... How, we, how is democracy supposed to function genuinely if people can't keep up with what they're supposed to be voting on? That's that. But also, if you're a major party in the parliament, you have additional staff anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have party more staff. people working on the policies or the legislations where, where you can't reasonably expect an independent member with a staff of four or five to be on top of the dozens of bills that are you know, being debated in the chamber every day, can you? No, you can't. So what's something about the way that Canberra works from that you experience that you think would surprise most people? Well, I guess it wouldn't be a too big a surprise that um, you know, some politicians are not up to the job. <laughs> it was initially um, a surprise for you, was it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, because I came from a system, you know, I would, I like, to think, system. Yeah, yeah. I like to think Chinese system is meritocracy. Right. You get to the position because you're competent and you are fit for that position. But, you know, here I was quite surprised that people from all walks of life, they should be allowed to become a politician, but, you know, they sh you should actually try to educate yourself before you take up the role, I suppose. Yeah, so, so you're not saying stop people from, from running or whatever, but no, there must but, be a better way of picking qualified people. Yeah, by all means, if you're interested in politics, if you want to make the country better, you know, try to have a go. But you, know, you have to make sure you understand what you're standing for, not, from, not because you got emotional from a news headline that you decided to run. You have to look deeper than that. Yes. No, I, I uh, well and truly agree. Um, well, you just mentioned uh, China, so let's talk about that a little bit now. And yeah. then we'll get, I want to get into the politics more later, but I want to talk about the economic differences yeah. now because you do, you're an Australian Chinese, you have experience of both countries. And I would say that you have more of an understanding of China than most Australians do. So how do you see China's economic approach compared with Australia's neoliberal economic policies? I think China's economic approach is, first of all, the long-term planning. The, the planning makes it, uh, makes it clear to the market that uh, where the country should be headed. For example, at the and moment... That's a political decision, isn't it? It's a political... Like, the, the government says we're going to go in this direction. Well... Before the government says so, there are experts panels that advising the governments where, okay, uh, yeah. where the emphasis should be. Um, There's there a consultancy process that runs for a couple of years, am I right, on, in terms of each major announcement? There's a lot of consultants. Yeah, yeah there's consultancy process. There's also, <laughs> might be surprising to some people here, that uh, there are also other political parties in China. Now, it's not surprising to me, but I, I, I did a faux shock horror then. Because yeah. it's true, there are. Yeah. And they yeah. participate in that process? Yeah, they consult uh, with the uh, Communist Party of China as well on policy um, directions. But every major policy comes about first off, first off because um, experts panels or experts in whatever the field thinks the country should be investing a bit more, let's say, in renewable energy. 
And then they do a bit of research, they do a bit of a feasibility study, et cetera, et cetera. And then the government announced that, okay, we're going to invest more in renewable energy. It's not uh, a dream child of one man, one man waking up suddenly and deciding to go this way or that way. It's not a captain's call of a political party leader. You, you would have been no. used to this term, captain's call. Yeah. Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister when you were in the Senate. Yeah. He made a lot of captain's calls, so yeah. China doesn't do it that way. No. It's the behind-the-scenes working of the experts isn't really sort of in the public's eye because the risk of the issue being politicised. Yeah. We see a lot of politicizing in Australia, yep. but that often muddies the water and make it harder to make the right decision. And often the decision isn't have, often the decision isn't have to be on the right or left. It has to be sort of in the middle, in a balanced approach. So a lot of people say that the Chinese government act quickly. Yes, they act quickly, but they do invest their time in planning and researching before they call the shot. And when you, you the way you said it before is this um, uh, effectively sends a message to the market. The market then benefits from this approach because it provides certainty for them. Would you say? Yeah. For example, you know, lately there has been a technology ban um, chips uh, being yeah. exported to China. So China, I think, last couple of years ago that uh, they're going to invest heavily in chips. Not potato uh, chips. Not potato chips. chips. Yeah, the little chips. bit high-end stuff. High-end. <laughs> <laughs> My son wouldn't care about those chips. He wants potato chips, but anyway, yeah, high-end. So, so, yeah, now you see a lot of private companies uh, investing heavily and some of them going public um, in terms of doing IPOs and share price has gone up quite a bit. Right. So they know, as business owners, they know the government wants to look after chip manufacturing and design industry. Yeah then they get the comfort in putting a bit more effort into it, you know, their own resources, yep. uh, knowing that there will, there will be risk, but also knowing that the government would love, would love to help. And what do you see as the contrast to the way Australia operates under our neoliberal model? Well, it's basically every man for itself. Uh, like every company just maximise maximize its own profit and there's no... Uh, planned or organized coordinated approach in how your company and my company could sort of combine our efforts together to make, uh, make a better industry, for example, or whether certain companies could come together to um, look at uh, social benefits rather than only the return to the shareholders. And you, would you be aware of um, Australia's history, economic history, though, because until, say, the 80s, we also somewhat did what you're describing in China. Yeah. Other countries did that too, like UK. And that's where our success came from. Yeah. We don't have, we, we now got less than 5% manufacturing, I think, mm. in Australia, whereas mm. we had, it peaked at um, uh, something like 30% in the 1960s, yeah. right? Yeah. And now we've got virtually none left. Yeah. Um, this this neoliberal every man for himself approach just hasn't worked. No, it hasn't. I mean, if you look at companies as individuals, for example, if you're in iron ore mining, your best your best money or profit comes from mine the ore from the ground, sell the ore somewhere else. Yeah. 
making it into steel is a little bit risky and it probably doesn't provide much return to sort of make the risk uh, worth it. And that's why if companies are allowed to just make the best decision for their shareholders, they will choose the uh, best path forward. But that doesn't always mean the country gets the most benefit. No, that's right. If we want a steel industry, it's the, it's the government that would have to set the direction and then yeah. that allows the, country, the companies to, make, to take the risk knowing that there's a support for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, um, there's a, so China has this approach. It's been very, it's been very successful. Um, one of the ironies is, even though our approach is very, China's approach is very different to us, um, its approach has benefited us, right? Yeah. You're in the industry that's probably benefited the most. Yeah. Um, you know, we saw a lot of investment coming from Chinese companies into the mines here that, you know, helped develop the mines and gave more jobs to the locals. Um, without the sort of government-sponsored approach, uh, I think a lot, of well, a lot of the companies are state-owned anyway. Yeah. So when the government points, go to Australia and invest more, they will come. Yeah. Now, the, the way you, I have to comment, uh, Dio, the way you just said that is there are people in Australia that would, um, I think we'll get onto the politics now, they would twist that and say, see, the, that's, that's the, the Chinese eyeing off, the Chinese Communist Party eyeing off Australia for some reason. Um, Whereas the evidence is, yeah, there is a reason. Mm. Mutually beneficial economic progress is the reason, but they've turned it into um, something else. So in terms of the politics around China now, um, do, you, do you see a distinct difference between now and the time you served in the Senate in terms of the politics around China? Uh, yeah, there was. I think... Um what marked the change is when Malcolm Turnbull decided to ban Huawei. Yep. From my perspective, that's a signal that uh, we are sort of trying to keep our distance from China, but at the same time aligning ourselves closer to the U.S. Yep. Mind you, he, you know, we banned Huawei before, even before the U.S. did. Yes. We front run it. Yeah. Yeah, like everything else yep. to do with China. We want to be the leader. Yeah. <laughs> now, they, um, some people would, would see that as an act of uh, sovereignty if we did it first. But in reality, um, all we've done is... Because China took that re very personally, didn't it? Yeah. The banning of Huawei. Yeah. And all we've done is, is um, sabotage... Well, we set up this, the, the preconditions for China's re economic reaction to the banning of Huawei, yep. and even though we did it first, we've documented that the people who led on that were not were genuinely not doing it out of a concern for Australia. These were the people that were moving us along the path of yep. following the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's been years. Where's the evidence of yep. any yep. Huawei backdooring or anything of that of that nature? On the other hand, we have evidence of a certain country has been surveying um, other leaders uh, in other countries, and yet we haven't done anything to, the, to uh, address that. Well, name two, the presidents of Indonesia and Germany 
Mm. Both had their phone taps, phones tapped by the United States. Yeah. And in terms of the Huawei decision, I, may, I, I, I know that the China, Chinese took us banning Huawei personally. What they would have taken more personally is when we lobbied other countries to also ban Huawei. Yeah. And the most, the most um, egregious example was the pressure that we put on the UK. And it was the UK that was the biggest contradiction to all the uh, propaganda about Huawei because mm. GCHQ, which is the, the premier surveillance company uh, agency in the world actually, yeah. had set up a special annex in which to examine every little bit of Huawei technology and they found nothing, mm. absolutely nothing. And they said, well, we're not going to ban this. It's a, it's a superior product. It's a cheaper product. Why would we ban it? Until the five eyes came down hard mm. and and um, pressured them to do that, yeah. and that kind of, I think we really crossed the line when it came to that. But yeah. there's no accountability. Well, I mean, Huawei was a, or still is a national pride for the Chinese people. Yeah. Um, it's the first sort of technology company that really climbed up the ladder globally. Um, there was no evidence of any, of any wrongdoing by Huawei's part, and yet you know they were heavily sanctioned. A lot of a lot of Chinese people took that personally as well. Yeah. So you now see this distinct shift in politics. But back to you as a senator, how do you feel you would go in the Senate now if you're expressing views like this as an Australian, as a Chinese Australian senator? I imagine, I imagine I'll be called a CCP shill. Yeah. Well, I am, yeah. so you, you would definitely be. <laughs> I have the look. <laughs> <laughs> I think the truth is um, we have been told lies about China. Problem for us is that it's, it's on path to become the, set, uh, the largest economy. It has a tremendous influence, particularly in the, um, in the Asian region, oh, and also Asia and South America. Yep. It, it's, it is the largest trading partner of Australia as of now, yep. fingers crossed. If we get it so wrong about China, how are we going to compete with all the other countries that treat China as the largest trading partner. You know, we, we say that China is our largest trading partner, but so do the other 120 countries. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, we've vacated some of the export market to other countries. Beef, for example, uh, the US beef is taking up quite a chunk of the Chinese market. Wine, I mean, some European wines are taking over uh, from Australian wines. So we are, we've got nothing to gain by going against China. Not saying, you know, not saying we should trust any country blindly, but we are literally cutting off, cutting off our arms, yep. trying to be the leader of the anti-China gang. And what do we gain from that? Well, you mentioned some of those export items the economist Saul Eslake did an analysis last year that we reported where mm. he made the point that, you know, we've clearly aligned with the United States on the China question. Um, a lot of these those export items that China stopped coming to China, America 
started exporting those same things. And, and, and Solis, like said, America's eating our lunch. Yeah. So we're cutting off our arms for a country that then just happily to, happy to take over our markets. Yeah, and also America is telling us, great job, Aussies. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's right. But if you, if you look at the economies, our economy and China's economy are very complementary. Yeah. Our economy and the US economy are quite competitive. Right. Okay. So in, in, for a lot of exports, we're competing with the US to the Chinese market. Yeah. We, uh, we're probably the only political party in Australia that advocates um, participating in the Belt and Road. Um, Dan Andrews was enthusiastic for a while, but he's mm. been put back in his box. Yeah, yeah. But what, the reason we advocate participating in the Belt and Road is because we're complementary. We, we could be seeing out this as an opportunity to develop Australia. Yeah. And I'm not saying, um, we don't, actually, as you know, we, we believe in, um, one of the things we would like to be, do similar to China is have state banks, in, industry banks to do the investment here, yeah. which we have all the capacity in the world to do. But we could be developing our food production capability and yeah. our other ca production capabilities to, to supply that massive expansion of economic development that China's driving, not just in China, but right around the world. Yeah. We, we have all this wealth in Australia. We could be, we could be helping to supply all that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and instead, we are taking this childish approach of, oh, no, no, we're going to accept that that's a threat. Um, as you know, though, Dio, a lot of this tension and the rhetoric, et cetera, um, is based on a lot of claims. Yeah. And that most Australians, when they hear these claims, have no basis to evaluate them as whether, to evaluate whether they're true or not, right? What do you think, now that you've been here so long, what do you think Australians don't understand about China that makes them susceptible to the arguments that China is somehow a threat? Uh, I would say if you look at China's history, I mean, it's not a country that, um, that's interested in invading anyone because in the invading part is easy, governing is difficult, yeah. and China thousands of years ago has already reached its geography uh, sort of boundary that was set by geography anyway. Right. So it's not an expansive country by nature. It prefers to do business, prefers to trade. As long as I can buy stuff from you, as long as I can sell stuff to you, why do I want to have a fight, yeah. uh, fight you? Exactly. So, so this, is, this, is, this, is not, this is not China. China not being aggressive in that way is not weakness. It's wise. China's yeah. a wise country. It's, yeah. it, it, it clearly has decided after, what, 5,000 years of history, this is a better approach. Yeah. If you look at geopolitics, the, the war that is happening in Ukraine, I mean, two countries that stood, stood out in their, uh, in their approach to the war was China and India. Yeah. You know, they only want to protect their, their best interest and by siding with one side, eventually you end up hurting yourself. And that's, sort of the, that's the sort of approach that China always takes on international issues. Be neutral. You support sovereignty, yes, but you don't help de defend the sovereignty by invading another country. You just want to always uh, promote diplomacy, have them sit down and talk with each other to sort, of, to sort out the issue. The thing is, Ukraine and Russia may be fighting now. Who knows? 
what happens 50 years down the line. They could be brothers again. Mm. And they could be remem remembering, hang on, that country over there supported you to fight me 50 years ago. Let's hate that country and we still be brothers. Um, I have to point out, a former Australian senator has just said something in an answer to a question from me where he's thought in a 50-year framework, time frame, that's not you showing off, that's just how you think. <laughs> and that is how China, everyone understands that's how China thinks. Um, Australian politicians don't think that way. They think very short term. Well, the three-year cycle is, uh, is a killer. Yeah, uh, for sure. Mm. Um, so this is quite a good insight. If Australians actually looked at China's history and, and stopped accepting the, the claims that it's some kind of a threat is important. But then the rest of it, there's just a blizzard of claims that fly yeah. around. Yeah. And how much of that, do you, when you hear that, do you just recognise as outright lies? Well, the Uyghur genocide is a, is a clear one. You know, in China, every, 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 anyone that's finished high school would know the ethnic minorities, all 55 of them, get bonus points in the university entrance exam just because they're a minority. You're saying they're, they're, there's positive discrimination in China, or what the Americans call affirmative, affirmative action. Affirmative action, yeah, if you call it that. And uh, business owned by minorities get, uh, pays less tax. Some certain products or agricultural um, produce can only be cultivated or harvested by local ethnic groups because it's been their tradition. So there's a lot of affirmative action to help the minorities to get ahead or to keep up with uh, the Han people. Yeah. I'm Han. So in Han I grew, is about 90%, right? Roughly. Yeah, roughly. Yep. So I grew up knowing that I didn't get all the beneficial treatments like the other, like the, the other 55 ethnic groups. So if you want to tell me one ethnic group is being mistreated, I would seriously doubt it. Now, granted, you know, not every Australian would know that, but if you apply a little bit critical thinking, for example, if there's a Uyghur genocide, where are the refugees? Yeah. I mean, we're no stranger to refugees here, and we hear every bit about refugees whenever there's something happening in other parts of the world. Have you heard anything about refugees fleeing Xinjiang? There's no floods of refugees, no. And uh, here's a good example of Aussies punching, up, punching above our weight. We would, you, know, you would assume that the US has the most satellites watching China 24-7, yeah. yet it's only up to one Aussie satellite boy <laughs> to identify all 380 concentration camps. How could the US miss all of them? All right, you're now referring to Nathan Rusa yeah. of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, who's yeah. like two years old, <laughs> maybe 22, mm. who, satellite boy, who has single-handedly detected, yeah. <clears throat> what is it, 380 concentration yeah, 380. camps, yeah. that the myriad of American satellites flying overhead all the time yeah. have not detected. Yeah, couldn't pick any, uh, even one of them. But on the other hand, the US is quite capable 
of locating one Iranian general. Yes. And, you know, assassinate him. So is the US capable or not? Yeah. Why is it up to one Australian to locate all 380 camps? I mean, it just doesn't make sense, does it? No, it I doesn't. think that the thing is that I think US learned its lesson from confirming there was weapons of mass destruction. They got burned, well, not enough, but they got burned for that. Now they're trying to keep their distance. Let someone else to come up with the evidence. They're and using a cutout yep. called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when things go bad, they can always throw someone under the bus, but not themselves. Yeah, and, I, and I'll take that further. The leaders of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute get these very young staffers like yep. Nathan Russo, yep. Russo and like Vicky Shu yep. to put their names on these claims yep. so that they can also be thrown under the bus. Yep. They're expendable. They've got no credibility anyway. And the leadership um, of running the joint can still maintain face. Yeah. So, you know, the thing... I'm going to take you up on this, on, on this uh, affirmative action, though. This, yep. is, this is quite stark. So you, you've just told us you grew up knowing this. How does China handle the potential for um, resentment from the majority hand Chinese? Well, I guess that's one reason that some policies shouldn't be politicized. Yes. Um, you know, even though I knew I didn't get any benefit, but I also knew that um, some of the, um, the ethnic minorities needed help. Yeah. They were not majority, and uh, some of them don't even speak uh, Mandarin as first language. So they needed all the help they could get, so that they could be um, they could keep pace with the rest of the country. And only this only this year, the central government decided to hand over the decision making rights to individual provinces in terms of how much bonus points the students get. Uh, okay. I think they're slowly easing it because I think they've seen tremendous progress already. So it's work. Okay. So it's not going to be in place forever. No, it's, it won't be permanent. So this is the Chinese government saying, okay, we need to make sure everyone comes along yeah. on this. So we've got to work harder on the minorities, etc. Yeah. Um, and it's absolutely worked. Well, I hope people, I hope the listeners learn something from that description. I mean, that's great. This is. This is why it's so beneficial to talk to someone who actually has knowledge and mm. direct experience of this. Um, finally, just any last words relating to, you know, what could, what if you had to, to sort of recommend to your fellow Australians how we could shift this back to a more positive footing between us and China and not go down the path, of, to, which I think would be a path to a war of annihilation. Yeah. If we can dis, if we avert that, what what could what should we do to do it that and make it more positive? It's actually very simple, and it should be common sense. We should look after our own interest as a country. We shouldn't be defending any other country's ambition globally. We shouldn't be part of the ship that is sinking. Yeah. Um, Right now, we're like a shellfish or oyster latched onto the bottom of a sinking boat. When the boat crashes, 
into the bottom of the ocean, we'd be first to squash. As we should be choosing an independent path, just like India did. Yeah. Look after our own economy, look after our own interest. Um, sure, the US and, the China, and China are having a bit of uh, argy-bargy right now, but we could be neutral. If you look at the economy, the US is our uh, largest investor. Mm. When you look at a company, why do investors invest in you? Because you're making money. How do you make money? You look after your customer. Yep. Who's our customer? China. China. When we pick a fight, for example, with China, China buys less from us, and the investor will pull out. So we get a double whammy. But if we maintain a neutral position, looking after our interest only, we could be trading more with China. And because we're trading more, we're getting more from China. And then we're getting more from our investor, USA. And by the way, if you want you know, toothpicks to throw at a mountain, you still need money to be able to, to, be able to afford that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a reference to Paul Keating yeah. describing the nuclear, the, well, the AUKUS submarines yeah. will be the equivalent of throwing toothpicks at a mountain. Yeah. So if we wanted to go down that path, we still need money for the toothpicks. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, what you just said there, um, uh, Dio, is what... The former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser wrote a book about called Dangerous Allies, mm. where he said Australia must become, it's never been an independent country, we must become independent. Um, and the, the irony is, if we actually did that, if we became independent and took a neutral position on this, there's a good chance America would be forced to change its approach because we, we covered this in our um, Australian Alert Service magazine last yeah. week, yeah. that America cannot, if America is in any way entertaining the idea of a war with China, it needs Australia for that, Yeah. right? And if we say we're neutral, we will force our ally to think differently, which in our view would be much better for the world anyway. Mm. And mm. this can actually, so it's not just a security for us, it can help take, diffuse the situation. And, to, and, I, and even from a, from a domestic political standpoint in America, imagine what the politicians would have to say to the American population to explain why the Aussies aren't with them anymore on this. The most loyal yeah. of allies, if we say, no, we're not going down the path of a war, mm. that would be something that the American politicians would find very hard to explain unless they're prepared to change their approach. Yeah, well, learn something from the Solomon Islands. Yeah, why not? By being neutral, now it has the attention from China, USA, and us. Yeah. That, what a great position for a country to be in, right? And African countries say the same thing now, right? Yeah. They're saying, come in and all compete for our attention. We don't mind. Yeah. Let's finally reverse the, what colonialism did for us. Yeah. Well, Dio, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much for appearing on Citizens Insight today. I'm so glad that you've had the experience you've had, became a senator, even if it was just for two years. Mm. Um, it's a fantastic story. And genuinely, to the viewers, um, you know, I, we, I like doing interviews like this to be as provocative as, as uh, uh, educational because I just, you know, the Citizens Party has a very strong view. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And I hope you find, um, if, for those of you who found what Dio said provocative, um, that's fine, but don't deny that this is 
your DO, your direct experience. That's yeah. the important thing. Um, and take that on board. Most people who will find it provocative have not had this direct experience. You have, and we all need to learn from each other on things like this. So, Dio, thanks for appearing on Citizens Insight. My pleasure, Robbie. And thanks to the viewer for watching. Tune in next time for more of Citizens Insight.